Hi, this is Dave Swartz. I'm the co-founder of Metal Mobile and Hang With, and you are hanging with the App Guy, Mr. Paul Kemp. Hi, it's Dave Baggett, and welcome to the App Guy podcast. The App Guy podcast. Straight from your host, Paul, the App Guy. Sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. The App Guy podcast. Welcome to another episode of the App Guy podcast. I'm your host, it's Paul Kemp, and I am in love with this podcast. I'm going to tell you a story here. One of the reasons why I set this podcast up is that I discovered an app, an app as a result of listening to a podcast, and it was called Everest. And I went in eagerly uh, to see all the journeys uh, that other people were doing, and I decided to put down a journey on my own. Uh, It's called... um, creating a podcast for with 50,000 downloads and I put that journey down back in November last year and since then I have been working tirelessly to uh, achieve that goal and been I've been updating Everest and Everest is when one of those things that has really inspired me really uh, has kept me going through you know the the hard times and uh, and also just being a, a place where I can use the app to uh, create milestones and, and small wins and so um, the journey is becoming almost full, full circle here because uh, although I'm yet to achieve that goal, I do have the founder of or co-founder of Everest, the app. Uh, <laughs> so uh, his name is, you can hear him on the other line now, his name is uh, Francis Pedraza and he is the co-founder uh, of the app Everest. So go and have a look at it on your iPhone uh, or your Android. Have a look in the app store, download Everest. You'll notice it. It's a beautiful app. And uh, well, Francis, let, let me welcome you to the App Guy podcast. Paul, that's such a heartwarming story. Thanks for sharing. Well, I'm sure you've got loads of heartwarming stories. This is a podcast where I do really try hard to um, inspire, you know, the Appster tribe listening. So yeah. let's get inspired by your journey. How and how did you come up with this awesome idea and, and talk us through um, the setup process that eventually ended up with Everest going live? Yeah, it's quite a story. So I'm 25 years old now. Um, I graduated college at the age of 22, um, so three years ago in June. And uh, I had previously done an internship at Google in New York and uh, while I was in college. And I decided not to pursue a career at a big tech company and instead to um, take a project I did my senior year in college, uh, which was sort of focused on these like silicon wristbands and uh, serial numbers on the wristbands and getting people to like do stuff um, sort of gave me an idea to um, uh, to start a company that would create an app to help people achieve personal goals. And um, for the first six months, I didn't really know anyone in Silicon Valley, so I built a network. And then I had a lucky break. Um, someone introduced me to Peter Thiel, who wrote the first check for the company on New Year's Day. And um, the whole first year, I sort of had to learn how to do app development and recruited um, an, you know, an awesome team of engineers and designers. And mobile was, um, you know, mobile was not in its earliest days, uh, but it was, it was pretty early days for mobile development uh, and app development as a whole. Um, and it's actually amazing how just in the last two years since then, um, it's, it's just grown in leaps and bounds, not just in terms of the number of uh, downloaded apps and the number of apps on the store, but in the quality of the apps and the ease of development and the tools for developers. Um, the ecosystem uh, for mobile developers is just like getting better um, by the day. 
Um, so yeah, 2012, um, I uh, was a year of sort of development, and we launched uh, the first version of Everest in January 2013, and we spent a whole year working on um, the product and iterating on it. We launched a big 1.3 in June and a big 1.5 in November. We kept getting featured. We've been featured by uh, Apple in the App Store over 250 times. So we, we built a really quality product. We were well known for our design. We got a lot of press. Um, but we actually had to, um, uh, to pivot because um, the way we had built our goals product, people really struggled to stay disciplined on, um, on their goals and to keep taking steps. And it required a lot of human motivation um, to do that. And we, you know, we, we kept trying different approaches with the software, but ultimately we sort of decided that there was a human nature uh, problem and, and, that, um, and that working on an app to help you achieve your goals felt like work. Um, and so we decided to, to slightly change um, the focus. And so now, so we so rebuilt the product, brand new design, brand new code from scratch this year in 2014 um, from January to May. And um, we, uh, we had a whole new concept to basically um, frame your life around journeys. So I don't know if your audience, like anyone's familiar with uh, using Instagram, but on Instagram, you'll have like a photo of your wedding next to a photo of your breakfast. That's such a weird juxtaposition that it sort of uh, forces your identity to fit in one feed. Um, but on version two of Everest, um, which has been out for a couple months, um, it, you're able to share your life in multiple feeds and, uh, it, it allows you to share your life so much more meaningfully because you can have a journey, um, that would be, have its own feed and the journey might be about your passion for golf. And then you could have a journey about, um, uh, related to business and you could have a journey related to, uh, an artistic pursuit you have, or you could have a journey related to a trip, uh, or traveling. And, uh, and instead of tracking and planning steps towards accomplishing goals, these journeys could be about goals, they could be about experiences, they can be about um, any aspect of your life, um, and, uh, and, and you post moments, so like text and photo moments into these journeys, and just, it allows, it has allowed our community, which is still very small, but um, uh, relative to an app like Instagram, but growing, um, to, to really connect and express themselves more meaningfully than they can on other networks. And uh, we've just discovered that there's a huge human need um, to connect and share more meaningfully than, um, than you can do on, on other social networks. So you know, Facebook and Instagram have had a lot of success because they've allowed people to connect with others and to express themselves. But um, they, they, there's really been an, a lack of meaning to those connections and expression um, and so we're trying to, you know, sort of, we're currently focused on allowing people to connect and express more meaningfully, more authentically, and more vulnerably um, than they can anywhere else. And um, we're, we're, we actually have, like, huge improvements in the roadmap and, um, and also have, like, the best team we've ever had in terms of developing products. So, um, you know, I, uh, I know that your audience, Paul, is, is very, uh, very focused uh, on actual development um, and normally in the podcasts I do, I don't get a, I don't get sort of the opportunity to talk about the nuts and bolts of it, but I'd love to, to dig in. Yeah, let's do that. And, you know, because initially, uh, I'm thinking of Instagram and the fact that we had a previous guest who talked through the 
the Instagram did actually pivot as well. And so they figured out they completely changed, rewrote all their code and uh, came out as Instagram after realizing that people were sharing the photos uh, more than using the actual main feature. And so I love the idea of of pivoting. And I do want at some point to talk about resistance because you've received a lot Mm. of resistance in this idea initially. Um, I did hear, I think one of the podcasts, I can't remember, but you were talking about uh, actually facing uh, I guess the, the funding issue and um, there was some resistance to uh, believing that people would sort of go for the uh, the higher morals of so of uh, goal goal setting uh, within a social yeah. framework yep and so yeah sure. to, to, but that, that's that yeah just firstly get a, a chance to talk about this uh, team then because as you say you don't often get yeah. a chance to talk ab- about that yeah I'd love to talk about the so I think that in the beginning, I was more focused on product development than on product team development. And there's a huge difference. So um, when you're focused on product development, you just want to get something out the door. You want to get the next feature out the door. You want to launch the app. You wanna, um, you, you're just focused on, on whatever the actual pixels are on the screen and the code that's being written. So you just want to, like, y- y- your view of moving forward is totally linear. Um, eventually you, you realize that it's much more complicated than that. Um, so let me give you an example. Uh, if you, um, let's say you, you decide, you know, I just want to get started. I want to get this product going and I'm going to, I don't know how to code. So I'm going to hire an independent developer and an independent engineer. So you, um, you sort of look and you see that, that you could pay for some agencies to develop the first version of your app, or you could, uh, find a you know one man show you know engineer to develop an app or like hire a couple independent contractors and uh, you say sure you know I I've got some savings saved up I've got fifty or hundred thousand dollars and you know I'm going to pay these guys uh, some amount of money in some arrangement and they're going to develop the app even if they are good engineers which if you're a non engineer you uh, and I I did I did not study engineering in, in college so I studied history. Um, you know, it takes a lot of time to, to learn how to, to interview and vet and filter engineering talent um, and design talent. Um, and I feel like I've, I've acquired that skill, but there's a lot more even for me to improve on. But still, even if you manage to hire great people, and even if you're happy with the rate you're paying, um, and even if they build you a great first app, um, and you launch it, uh, the chances of it succeeding immediately after launch are so low that you like might as well just not expect it, um, and don't even like get your hopes up. It's just it's 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 just not likely, um, and um, and so then you end up with this this app out there, and you're like, okay, well, um, I actually I still believe in it. And I still really like it, and I'm enjoying using it. And let's say 5,000 other people are enjoying using it. You get 5,000 downloads, but it's not a million downloads, or it's not 10 million downloads. So you uh, you say, I want to improve it. So you end up having to go back to the same people, and um, and you, your talent, your team ends up being out of house. Uh, so um, you end up hiring. Um, engineers and, and you decide to bring your engineering talent in-house um, so you can get a cheaper rate or, or have just a dedicated team and maybe collaborate more closely with them. Um, and 
Uh, and then these new engineers look at the old engineer's code and they decide to do things differently. Um, if they're um, less talented than the old engineers, then they won't understand a lot of the code. And if they're more talented, they're not going to like a lot of the code. So, um, so then you end up inevitably having to rewrite the app or rewrite a lot of the code. And if they, you decide not to rewrite the code, then just development is slower. And your primary cost in app development is the cost of engineering and, and the cost of talent in your team. So uh, if your speed of development is slow because you're working with a bad architecture and you don't have the, the best architectural talent in-house, um, then you just end up iterating very, very slowly. And, um, and so it's all about uh, the pace at which you learn. So meanwhile, you're, fo you're still focused on product development. You might have gotten a few features out. And you might have this like um, big realization that uh, you need to start over and do a version two of your product, um, or, uh, or or what have you, and you um, you end up realizing that like you don't want to have the same mistakes happen that happened last time with engineering. So you um, you decide to find uh, more senior talent. But you're you're afraid to fire your current engineers or 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 pause development because you want progress to happen. So um, you uh, you say, hey, you know, why don't you guys work on version two while I go try to interview new people? Meanwhile, your money's getting low, and you uh, you're stressed about that. So you end up fundraising at the same time as you're trying to hire a new developer. Basically, you end up in quicksand. It's a quagmire. And the whole entire process should not have started. Um, you should not, you probably, and I, I, I my, uh, my girlfriend has an awesome expression. She, she says, stop shooting on yourself. Instead, uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, obviously in business and in life, there's no shoulds. There's just all experiences are useful. So, but, you know, I'm going to use that word with that caveat that like you probably, like once you have this experience, you end up not starting development projects until you have a very high degree of confidence in your team. And you want to have a CTO level, um, and I, I put that, that expression in quotes because it's almost cliche. Um, you want to have a very senior engineer um, who values clean architecture, who if, if all their code was open sourced, the open source community would love it, um, who... Um, uh, who probably has experienced developing mobile apps before, um, or at least has a solid engineering background, um, to be a, both a, your front end and your back end developer. So um, you know, with mobile apps, uh, and you know, I, I'm sure a lot of your audience knows this, and it might be basic for some of them, but I'll go ahead and, and state it that um, you your basic team structure, um, if you had no business overhead and you just had a product team. Uh, is probably three people. You have one designer, one back-end engineer, and one front-end engineer. The front-end engineer does all the Objective-C or Swift code on, the, on building the actual iOS app, and then the back-end engineer does all the server-side code. Um, most apps are going to need server-side code. Um, there's very few apps that might not need server-side code. Um, and there's also, it's rarer to find an engineer who can do both back and front-end. Um, so pr your, your most likely team size is probably going to be three people. Um, and, um, and then if you're a business person, that's like four people and that's actually the size our team is now. Um, so, you know, the, I, I, just to summarize this point about the team, the two most common mistakes with constructing a team are, um, 
focusing on product development instead of product team development, having the right team in place up front is probably a much better approach. will save you a lot of time and a lot of cycles because your primary cost is development. Um, and then the second major point is, um, and this is a, a different mistake I made, which is I ended up raising a lot of money and spending my time raising money, and then I had a team of 10 people, and we had five engineers, three iPhone engineers, two backend engineers, uh, two designers, a product manager to manage that whole product team, and then myself, an operations person, and then various interns. Um, and it was crazy. First of all, uh, we're burning like $100,000 a month, and, uh, and, and secondly, um, development was slow. Um, so, you know, common, you, you might think that, you know, the more engineers you have, the faster you go. And it's actually just the opposite. Um, we have a team of four now, and we are moving faster than we ever have before, and not just by a little, but by a lot. So we have by far the fastest, cheapest, highest quality development process we've ever had as a company, because after two years of working with a larger team and, you know, sort of cycling through various engineers, we ended up finding two that were absolutely set apart. And, uh, and, and so um, we always had great design talent, but you know, sort of that team of four people is just like, uh, including me, is, is, is really working for us and is our primary asset. And just to give you a sense of how valuable that team is, um, you know, I, I'm sure your audience has looked at the market for aqua hires. If you have a team that has a consistent track record of shipping high quality, innovative, um, mobile applications, uh, they like aqua hires can go in the order of like a million dollars per person or more. Um, and obviously they could be less. Um, but, uh, just, just to give you a sense of how valuable that is on its own. Um, so, um, that's sort of my, my little quick speech on, on having a great team. Well, Francis, that's amazing because I think with for 120 odd episodes, that's the first time we've gone through in such detail and great, you know, like story with regards to, you know, what it's like to be a startup founder, which many of the uh, Appster tribe listening right now are inspired to be, but also, uh, you know, your headaches with regards to actually growing and also your learning experiences. Um, because, yeah. you know, I guess what I've learned from that is one, that you have to focus on the human need at the end of the day, uh, rather than uh, completely focus on product features. Um, and that's yeah. the underlying theme of this series, this whole series is the, 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 focus on problem solving and uh, and almost like the human need you know the human need to share as well in in a very right. sophisticated way um, but also just what a great story in terms of finding uh, the right team uh, and uh, then you know because uh, i just automatically assumed it was a bigger team than you currently have because of the the quality of the uh, app and uh, and also the uh, the community behind it which uh, are really fanatical about the app you know they're really engaged uh, whenever i approach anyone on uh, Everest, uh, they're really, uh, yeah, friendly and uh, very engaged, and it's a great community to, I guess, support you. Yeah, it's actually we have an awesome community. So, um, actually, if you wouldn't mind, I can make a point about community and about um, uh, sort of um, how how growth works. Yeah, we'd for- love to hear that because that's, I mean, what just to, to put it into context, uh, we've recently had an episode where we know that we have to focus on community and and actually focus almost prior to the launch of the app on growing the community beta testing uh, and then when you eventually do get to the launch you know you've got a, a an active community there behind it that believe in the mission statement and believe in the app itself 
which helps for a launch. So yes, love to hear about growth and community. Yeah. So um, the first point I want to make is that um, you know for the first year after we launched, we were focused on the wrong metrics. Um, we were focused on the number of downloads. Uh, we were focused on um, uh, like. But yeah, so I mean, growth was, I think, our primary focus. Our secondary focus was on engagement. Um, it turns out that the most important thing is retention. So, um, you know, we, we have really never had lower, you know, that much lower than 25 or 30,000 uh, monthly active users. Um, but we've had nearly 100,000. Um, but, uh, you know, no matter how much press or no matter how, how many App Store features you get, um, uh, and quite frankly, no matter how many downloads you get, uh, if you can't retain people, it's not worth anything. So growth without retention um, is uh, it is probably not worth anything unless you have some upfront monetization. So if you know if you're charging, let's say three dollars for your app, uh, and you get a million downloads, and Apple takes thirty percent, you make two million dollars. Um, and if everyone stops using it the next day, it's no problem because you already made your money. Um, so you sort of like this rule, I, I call it sort of a rule of, um, it's, it's a rule of three where you have to pick two of the three, any two, any combination of the two will work. Um, you either have to have a lot of growth and retention, uh, in which case the, the most important thing is retention, because if you have retention, you'll eventually get growth. Um, or you want growth and monetization, um, but the monetization needs to be upfront, uh, at least before people drop off. Um, uh, and quite frankly, you can have retention and monetization because growth will come later and, and retention almost implies growth. So, you know, basically the most valuable thing um, is retention. And um, let me talk a little bit about retention. Um, you know, the, uh, the, first of all, the gold standard in metrics uh, is Mixpanel. So Mixpanel.com. Um, and we sort of spent a year using tools that were not as good as Mixpanel. And I don't even know if Mixpanel existed. If it did exist, it was very a very small company. Now it's a very large company. Um, and they're like, you know, probably the most successful analytics company in, in, um, that I'm aware of. Um, and uh, are much, much more robust than, say, Google Analytics, for example. And uh, it is really the gold standard for uh, mobile app analytics. And... Um, it uh, if if people are using your product for a month or two months and then they stop using it, um, which is uh, which is sort of what was happening with our goal product, um, you need to dig in because uh, you know if your half life is too you know is not basically uh, you're there, there's sort of three numbers you look at day zero to day one retention, day one to day seven, and day one to day thirty. Uh, and then you might pick like a, a farther day out, like a day 120 or whatever to see where it really plateaus off at. But um, you have most of your drop-off the first day after people download it. Um, most, of, most of those people don't come back the second day. This is true of mo like most apps. Um, it's, it's, uh, you, can, you can call this an activation problem, but it's really a retention problem. Um, and then day one to day seven measures how many people who come back the day after downloading, day one, um, which many people confuse with day two, but it's day one. Um, how many people are, uh, so if a, a thousand people come on day zero, downloaded on day zero, and a hundred people come on day one, 
Um, if 50 people come on day seven, your day seven retention is 50% of your day one. Um, and if um, 25 come on day 30, um, then your day 30 retention is 25% of um, day one and 0.25% of day zero. So um, this is how these are these are sort of the numbers you focus on, and, and the question is like, how do you make them? Um, you know, how do you get people to stay in your app? And you end up realizing that um, there's uh, there, there's several things that really matter. Um, one is uh, is is very sort of a priori in the sense that it's like, is your app solving a problem for people? Um, and and there's a lot of apps that are are created that are Technology in search of a problem. Um, one of the one of the members of my team, Josh, loves talking about this. Like, there's a lot of technology in search of a problem, and that's that's good. You know, that's that's not a bad thing, or it's 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 a result of something that's not bad, anyways. Which is that the cost of developing software and the speed at which we've been able to develop software is going down. So um, people tend to um, to just you know, there's just more software being created than ever before. Um, you know, if you can build an app of the quality of something like Everest with a team of four, then um, then it's just it, there's just a lot of things being built. Um, so, you know, is your app solving a real problem for people um, that nobody else is solving, or or are you solving? If there is a competitor solving it, uh, or an entrenched player like an incumbent, are you solving it 10x better? Um, and and if you just focus on that, that actually solves a lot of the other issues. Um, another key thing to think about is just sort of uh, really the finer details of user experience where you, know, you think about what, are, what is the engagement loop. So um, if people come in, uh, how much work or effort or friction is there um, for them to put something in in order for them to get something out? Um, and you almost think of it in terms of like behavioral economics, right? Like what in your experience, what in your app is a cost, and what in your app is a value. And sort of the cost uh, equation that you want to keep in your mind, if you want to keep it something super basic, value must be greater than cost. Um, and, uh, but it, it's obviously a little bit more complicated than that because you know, if there's too much upfront cost, even if the value is greater than the cost, uh, then people, very few people will put in the effort to get the value. Um, so there's, there's, you know, various dynamics like this. It's way more valuable to get one person to believe in you enough to write that, you know, there's, there's lots of wealthy people in the world. Um, you know, it'll save you a lot of time if you find one person who believes in you a ton, uh, and writes one check that's the whole check instead of finding 50 people who believe in you and who write 50 smaller checks and who don't believe in you as much. So, um, there's a lot of value to, um, to being persistent and, and being patient and trying to find that one person. Um, and, and here's the thing. There's a lot of large numbers here. So uh, if you talk to 10 people and they all reject you, that's okay. Um, if you have the patience and the time and the tenacity to talk to 100 people, you might find just one who, uh, who is going to be your lucky break and going to write that one check. Now, that's dangerous, right? Because um, you know that's, that's both uh, a wisdom and a folly. Um, because you can end up you could apply that argument to any any set of numbers, and sort of at one point you could you could spend a whole year or two years uh, talking to people and uh, and and with nothing to show for it, and then it can all change in a day, um, or it won't, and you're just going to waste more time. <laughs> yeah. So so you always have to gauge your own insanity, and 
And the non-belief of other people is always a good mirror for you to really see if you truly believe in what you do believe. Um, but you should, you should have some confidence in, in your beliefs. And then with the adversity thing, I mean, gosh, I really think that like staying motivated, um, staying high energy, staying optimistic is the struggle. Um, like it, it, it is, the, it is your work. Uh, your work is emotional work as, um, Seth Godin likes to say, your work is not actually time, uh, as much as it is, um, as the emotional effort of, of staying passionate and staying engaged, um, staying in the present, staying in the flow. So, um, I think that, uh, you know, we've, uh, I've, um, I've raised $2.7 million so far. And I've raised it one check at a time from 50 people. And it has taken, you know, a lot of tenacity. And there have been times when we've run out of money. There's been like six times we run out of money. There's been times where I have, you know, literally not had the money to pay for groceries and had to like, uh, you know, ask, like borrow money from friends or family. Um, and those are the moments when you really uh, struggle emotionally um, with your choice to, to build something, um, and where you really need to, to, you end up asking yourself the hardest questions. Um, and the, the number one thing I've taken from the adversity is, um, it's really powerful to have tenacity and perseverance, but it's also really powerful to have the emotional will to make hard decisions. Um, and those could be decisions like, uh, for example, last year I raised a million dollars and I was I felt like shit the whole time because we were burning $100,000 a month. And so if you just do the math, there wasn't enough money um, to pay even myself a lot of the time. And, um, and I was spending all my time fundraising, but I could have prevented that like whole year of feeling like I was a hamster in a wheel uh, by just deciding our team was too large. And we needed to go from 10 to 4, and we need to figure out how that would happen, and just stopping everything and making it a, a drastic change. But there was a lot of reasons why that would have been an emotionally hard decision. So um, I think that oftentimes people are willing to work hard instead of making hard decisions, um, and you generally don't want to do that. You want to make hard decisions instead of working hard. And, uh, and if you generally see those two things as inversely related... Um, you'll end up having a very powerful lens through which you view your work. Um, you know, the real work you're going to do is by making good decisions and hard decisions. Um, and I wrote a blog post about that if anyone wants to really dig into that, that truth. Um, but, uh, you know, there's always a balance between persevering and trusting things are going to work out and, um, you know, knowing your power to make hard decisions. Um, so... I'll leave it at that. Francis, that is wonderful. Let's say goodbye. I know we've, you've got to go off and uh, grab another call. Uh, so I uh, just wanted to um, thank you for being on this podcast. I mean, you just you have inspired me and no doubt everyone listening, uh, just giving us the genuine, authentic journey that you've had to go through. Uh, just before we say goodbye, what's the best way of reaching out to you, Francis? Um, yeah, thanks for asking. Please follow me on Twitter at Francis Pedraza or on Everest. You can just search for me on Everest. Um, and, uh, and I reserve LinkedIn for close personal uh, or professional relationships. So probably best not to send me a message there. But um, Twitter is a good way. And, and if you interact with me on Twitter and you, and you want to reach me by email, I'll send you or DM you my email address. 
Francis, wonderful. Well, uh, thank you for bringing the world a wonderful app and, and overcoming all that early resistance and, uh, and building such an awesome community and just sharing your story like that. That's wonderful. Um, we uh, appreciate your time and uh, all the best. You're welcome back anytime on the App Guide podcast. It sounds like yeah, you've got a lot yeah. more to share. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you on Everest, Paul. And um, I, I find your story on Everest really inspiring. Great. Wonderful, Francis. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode. If you want to be a guest on the show or suggest someone, then please send an email to info at onemob.com. The App Guy Podcast.